Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to this 11th edition of Digital Detectives. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Applied Discovery, an international leader in electronic discovery, and Carbonite Pro, online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously, so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at CarbonitePro.com. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, Vice President of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the five hottest topics in e-discovery. We are pleased to welcome as our guest, California attorney and e-discovery expert, Josh Gilliland, who is perhaps best known as the author of the Bowtie blog, which Sharon and I follow avidly. Josh has given over 200 seminars on e-discovery throughout the country. Josh, we're glad to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. And uh, for the record, the Bowtie is real. <laughs> You're going to have to give John some help. He's not very good I, at tying them. <laughs> at, at, when, once a year, I have to wear a, a tux, Josh, and, and I can never remember how to do the bow tie. So I, I really am thankful for YouTube. <laughs> we did. I coached a high school mock trial team this year, and they all wore matching bow ties and scarves. And so we, we did a lot of bow tie instruction this past uh, uh, March. It was a lot of fun. That's way cool. <laughs> well, to bring us back to electronic discovery, let, let's hit the uh, form of production first, which is certainly always one of the hottest issues. What, what are the, the greatest problems and challenges here, Josh? Well, not stating one is a giant issue, and people sometimes still do that, uh, especially those who are in state court. They're still uh, figuring out how this works uh, in stating a, you know, how to uh, request something or what form they want to review it in. Uh, another issue is not discussing it at the meet and confer, and that's happening in both state and federal uh, litigation, and that's a problem. Uh, also, you know, as Craig Ball and others have highlighted, a meet and confer is a process, not not a one-time event. So this is something they litigants truly need to discuss frequently and often. With we're going to produce natively, and if something needs to be converted to a static image for redaction, come to an agreement on that. Another issue is not using a review platform to review ESI. Uh, I've seen that in cases. I've actually seen people talk about that, that they just don't want to buy or use a, you know, software as a service to review something, and that's problematic when they have uh, you know, 300,000 email messages to review. Sloppy requests that request things like all metadata, You know, when you go, do you really want 145 fields out of Outlook or do you really want 12? You know, things like that. Or do you really want system metadata? Probably not. So there's huge issues in just understanding metadata, which, you know, people use to describe fields of information versus, you know, embedded files and and, uh, system files and, and things of that nature. And also those who engage in gamesmanship, such as producing as non searchable static images. And thinking they can still get away with that. <laughs> there, there have been a lot of cases, of course, sanctioning people for exactly that sort of thing. And rightly so. <laughs> 
you know, Josh, we're we're starting to see more and more of the the solos and the small mid sized firms are are now getting involved in in e discovery. What what are some of their biggest issues they have to contend with? Well, one is education. They have to ramp up, and you know, because when I was talking to friends out here back in '06, '07 about e discovery, a lot of their reactions were, "I don't need to worry about that because I practice in state court," which was the biggest head-in-the-sand statement that they could have made. A lot of them are now catching, playing catch-up. Now, my local bar association is putting on a bunch of e-discovery seminars, and they're working very hard to educate the local bar, and they're, they're having good success. But there are many issues for the solo and the small firms. One is a lack of uh, affordable tools for them. When you have review platforms that are geared for either multi-district litigation or you know, service providers wanting to host things by the terabyte, uh, those aren't tools designed for solo practitioners. They're generally out of the price range. If you go up to a solo who's representing an individual who, say, got hit by a car, there might be some text message evidence, there might be some email messages, there might be some scans of doctor bills, and when you go to a service provider and the service provider says, sure, we'll host that data. It's going to be $100 a month per user, and we'll charge you an extra $200 a month for hosting. Uh, that doesn't work, especially when you could put that all into a uh, desktop review platform uh, and not have to have monthly costs that are being passed on to a small client. With all that stated, there is great hope. There are some wonderful desktop solutions that are within the budgets of small firms or solo practitioners. And it's also a matter of time before cloud-based review is affordable for solos. Uh, Bruce Olson, who you are good friends with, has, has highlighted that. And so there is a change of foot and things will get better for them. Can you name, Josh, a couple of the desktop platforms for review? Because I know probably some listeners don't even have a clue. Yeah, it's, I'm... Um, well. I'll speak for my alumni. I was at CT Summation, which is now, you know, a part of Access Data, and they have a you know, wonderful desktop review solution. Uh, you also have the Concordance uh, product line as well, which has a new version coming out. And so I, I look at that. You also have, again, I, I don't want to give too much of a commercial, but you do have Case Map and some of the case analysis tools that, that are great for solos that, that really like them. Um, another driving force in, in helping control some e-discovery costs on the collection side, uh, there are portable devices made by, you know, Guidance has some, Xdata has some, Paraben has them, uh, Pinpoint Labs has them that can do targeted collections for, you know, specific file types or, you know, run specific keywords and extract the data that is necessary for that lawsuit. And that, those, those portable devices that can be deployed uh, can help drive down the collection costs so people aren't imaging, you know, full-blown hard drives left and right, right. for reviewing a case that's about, you know, 20 uh, emails and a handful of loose documents about a contract dispute between, you know, a auto shop and a, you know, another vendor. So things are getting better, and I, I do believe that those who started the drive in, in, you know, helping reduce the cost actually came from the forensic side. 
Well, thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're doing similar things as well. Yeah, and, and indeed, the costs have come down for the client, and that's a that's a very good thing. Um, moving to the pension committee case, that created a lot of chatter on the net about litigation holds. Uh, Judge Shinlin certainly had a very firm opinion about uh, w- when the hold came into place. What trends are you seeing there? Well, the pension committee started the battle of slippery judges in issuing mega opinions, and you know as we all have to read those. So when you're dealing with 90 to 150 page opinions left and right, you know, you know judges are considering this very, very important. Uh, one of my favorite opinions about that was from uh, Judge Jeremy Fogel in the Northern District of California with a pro per plaintiff against Facebook. He could have taken this as an opportunity to write a 100 page opinion about when the duty to preserve attaches in the Northern District of California. His opinion was three pages long and four sentences on when the duty of pres- to preserve triggers. I wanted to hug him for that. Uh, it was it's a beautiful opinion, right to the point, and it, very well taken. Now, issues with this, uh, as you, you know, highlighted at ABA Tech Show, attorneys need to issue uh, litigation holds in writing. A lot of people still aren't doing that. They don't understand the importance of communicating a whole, and it's not just walking over to somebody and saying, like, hey, start saving that. It's not just sending one email. You need to create a track record, a log of what communications took place and people complying with it. Uh, Secondly, the failure to issue a litigation hold does not mean the offending party is sanctioned in the star chamber. You know, we, we, you know, this is not instant death sentence if somebody doesn't issue one immediately. And you see a lot of judges trying to add rationality to this process. Uh, last year at Legal Tech West, uh, Judge Waxy uh, stated he wanted to see evidence that was lost was actually relevant to the lawsuit. You just can't go in and say they lost data, Your Honor, because we think they did, and have sanctions issued. Um, other judges are very, very blunt in saying they want to know that the ESI that was lost actually existed. It's not something that's just being, you know, argued for the sake of argument. And again, I, I look to Fossiola for a lot of guidance, not just because of his classy bow ties, but because he's a wonderful jurist. <laughs> and in uh, one of his cases uh, from November, uh, Davis v. Grant Park Nursing Home, um, actually, I'll, I'll bring up the quote here, uh, assessing whether sanctions are warranted for the loss of otherwise discoverable information it's a function of whether a party has been prejudiced by that loss. And the issues that you have to get into in, in analyzing this are looking at all the information that is available and specifically the nature and the extent of the loss suffered to be accurately gauged. And the timing for this could actually be at the close of discovery on whether or not sanctions are, are justified. You know, Josh, when we, when we read the sanctions cases, it's, it's clear that preservation of ESI is, is poorly understood, and, and you kind of touched a little bit on, on that when you were talking about the collections. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenges are, are there causing these, these problems? Uh, you do have, you know, preservation should be rational and should be proportional. The problem is there's not a lot of case law guidance on what that means. You know, there is no written requirement, you know, that states that every hard drive in litigation has to have a bit for bid image done of it. That would, you know, be exorbitant if you have an eight terabyte SAN server. You know, no one's going to say, hey, you have to go out and, you know, do a bit by bit image of that in its entirety. You're probably going to want to do a targeted collection. 
The problem with that is no attorney wants to be the test case in saying, hey, we figured out that this targeted collection would be completely defensible and be the ones to argue that. As a transactional matter in talking to clients, that makes them very nervous. So this is, you know, sticky because I'm a huge proponent of uh, smart collecting, of targeted collections, of doing what rationally makes sense of if you have, again, that small uh, party, you know, private individual, you probably don't need to do a forensic image, a bit-by-bit image of their hard drive in its entirety. You probably could do a uh, defensible image that's done in a forensically sound manner of specific folders of specific email messages, because you don't need to go through the soap opera of their lives and copying everything and then figuring out how to dedupe it, denist it, and distill it down back to the specific folders that you actually needed. Uh, that seems a little exorbitant. So, uh, But the problem is no one wants to be the test case. That's where that cooperation thing comes in, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, put the knives down because it, it affects both sides of the V. Both parties have to deal with this. And this is where the meet and confer is profoundly important and coming to an agreement, coming to a consensus of what is proportional in their lawsuit, what makes sense for both parties so they don't drive up costs in collection, reduction, and review, uh, you know, making e-discovery a a train wreck. There there are ways to do this so it is not uh, exorbitant. There are so many attorneys who fear e-discovery because they just automatically assume it's expensive. I consulted on a case, we, we came in late, where the party just decided outright e-discovery is expensive. So instead of talking to any service providers and getting any bids whatsoever on what needed to be done to collect from their eight custodians who had you know, uh, hard drives that were less than 200 gigabytes each, so just you know, normal type litigation, they hired three guys who worked 40 hours each collecting things in the least defensible manner that you could possibly imagine because they decided for themselves that it would just be too expensive to do it the right way. Jeez. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsors, Applied Discovery and Carbonite Pro. Applied Discovery, a global leader in complex litigation preparation and management. Combine subject matter expertise and innovative e-discovery technology in a complete and proven process. From litigation readiness to collection, analytics, processing, document review, and production services, we manage your entire process with dedicated project managers to ensure quality and workflow efficiency. With our team, including former practicing attorneys and technology experts, Applied Discovery can help you successfully navigate the challenges of complex discovery. Discover Applied Discovery today at AppliedDiscovery.com. A computer disaster is devastating. Imagine losing your client files and billing records. That's why more law offices are using Carbonite Pro online backup. With Carbonite Pro, your files are backed up automatically, so it really gets done continuously. They're stored securely and safely off-site. Plus, each employee can access their backed-up files from any computer or on their smartphone with a free app. Prices start at just $10 a month. Start your free one-month trial at CarbonitePro.com. That's CarbonitePro.com. 
Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to California attorney Josh Gilliland about some of the hottest topics in e-discovery. We constantly have folks alleging, Josh, that e-discovery presents an undue burden. In fact, they, t- they tend to throw up their hands and say that before they get any other sentence out of their mouth. What, what are your views of how to prove undue burden? I look to Judge Fasciola's uh, McBride v. Halliburton case, in which the uh, judge uh, might have inadvertently created the default standard, an excruciating but highly educational and useful detail. You can't walk into court and go, Your Honor, it's expensive. The courts want to know why. They want to know where the data is. They want to know how it's stored. They want to know what process needs to be done to preserve it. What needs to be done to review it? What, how many hours that will take? All the facts that you could put in on how that information is stored is what needs to go into showing undue burden. Even if you do that, that's still not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, there, there was a case of uh, Hawk Food, Inc., the uh, William Blair uh, Company, uh, that stated, you know, a party still must do a reasonable search for responsive information, even if there is undue burden. You know, you just can't say, Your Honor, it's unduly burdensome, so we're done. That might be the case sometimes, but it's not the case across universally, across their entire data universe. So you still have to do a reasonable search for responsive information, uh, even if you do show undue burden. And uh, the other big factor is technology is changing. I've talked to attorneys who have this default view that backup tapes are not reasonably accessible as a matter of right. And technology has evolved because there are products out there that can go through backup tapes far more effectively than they could five years ago at a fraction of the cost. Well, we managed to get through our our five hottest topics, but it looks like we we have a little time left for some bonus questions that we'd love to have your views on. First, what what are the ethical issues of of Wi-Fi in the uh, practice of law? Well, there was a California ethics opinion that came out, and it's California State Bar Professional Responsibility and Conduct Formal Opinion Number 2010-179, in which some California attorney went to Starbucks and used the Wi-Fi at Starbucks and got more than an espresso with a twist of lemon. Um, (laughs) Somebody might have watched what she was doing. Someone might have hacked her. Something that wasn't right happened, and so somebody asked for an ethics opinion in California. And they came out with a six-factor test on when it's okay to use Wi-Fi. Now, the biggest issue probably isn't going to get a cup of coffee, but it's using your Wi-Fi at home. You know, do you have an encrypted wireless network? Do you have, you know, all these security features on your computers? Those are the issues that law firms need to think about because I guarantee associates are taking laptops home every night because they have billable hours to make. And they're working indefinitely. That's the downside of having a laptop. And California actually issued a six-factor test on whether or not it's okay to use a particular Wi-Fi network. So those are the issues. And I think the biggest one to watch for is when you're working from home, make sure that you have proper security set up. Yeah, I think you're right. That's something we certainly lecture about all the time, too. And it's amazing how they don't know how to do that. But that's a whole nother podcast. So let, let's move on to uh, a question I had. Another hot topic, I think, is a third party request to electronic communication service providers. Um, what are the trends you see there, Josh? The Stored Communication Act of 1986 has some teeth to it. Uh, it is a bar, a barrier 
and uh, information from, you know, Yahoo, Facebook, Google, uh, being produced litigants. I, I read a case last week. It was, it was sad. You know, a father's, you know, was trying to find his kids. His wife, ex-wife, took him to Egypt and disappeared. And he, he wants to find his kids. So he sent out third-party requests to Yahoo and Google trying to get access to her email and saying by her failure to appear in the lawsuit that default was enough to amount to consent under the Stored Communication Act. Now, the judge went, no, it's not. No one's done that before, and uh, so we're not going to do that. So it is, it is, a, it is a barrier. Uh, you're starting to see cases in Santa Clara, California, because that's where these companies are venued. So both the federal courthouse and the state courthouse here are dealing with third-party requests under both code sections in which people are trying to get information by third-party request instead of a direct request to the opposing side uh, for ESI. I think we do have time for one more question, John. You want to ask one more? Sure. Um, how, how do you think applications are going to impact the, the practice of law, you know, apps in particular, the, the things that we're seeing on iPads, et cetera, that, that seem to be really hot? Uh, they, they will be very helpful. You know, just as, you know, 15 years ago, when online re- legal research really took off, you know, it, it didn't mean the end of law libraries, but it helped level the playing field on attorneys being able to do legal research. Same for uh, apps. A friend of mine was uh, arguing a, a criminal trial uh, here, and you know, there was a fight over the evidence code. And he had the evidence code on his phone, and he was looking it up you know, in court you know, during argument, and the judge snapped at him with, you know, stop playing on your phone. To which the attorney re- retorted, Your Honor, I'm looking up the code section. And to which the judge said, I'm sorry. Judges like that sort of thing. Because if we're in court arguing, we need to be correct. So being able to access, and there, there are a lot of wonderful apps out there, and there are a lot of great code sections. Uh, there's also great legal dictionaries. And, and those are the things that, that truly do help uh, people look up things on the fly. So I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate that I do think they'll be very helpful. Uh, just as, you know, litigation support software, uh, when that first started coming out, you know, 20 years ago, helped make review a lot easier. It, it will, it will be a trend that helps people practice law efficiently. And and for those who are trying to use the iPad uh, or iPad 2 in their practice, uh, the new book by Tom Mile, iPad in an Hour for Lawyers, is phenomenally good. And he lists a number of uh, applications that are really very, very useful. And one, one of the best tips he gave me was just to search the App Store with the words law and legal, and you'd be amazed how much you find that can be useful. So anyway, that's a, that's a sidebar tip, but it, it uh, goes along <laughs> with the answer to the question. And Josh, we thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you're sharing your expertise with us on this podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here, and I hope you have a wonderful day. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's Computer Forensics Technology and Security Services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. 
As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.